You're listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How's it going? Not so bad. Yourself? Good. It's uh, it's cold in the South, but little to complain about. I think uh, they've got 20 inches of snow in the New York area, so we have zero in Georgia. I guess I can't complain. And being that this is truly an international podcast, uh, we've brought along a, a fantastic guest from the Southern Hemisphere so we can hear all about how great summer is going there, but um, we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I'm not going to hear any of your complaints around the, around the cold and snow. We had some in the Chicago area, you know, we got about, I'd say about a foot or so of snow in the last few days, and we're projected to get down to negative 30 Fahrenheit with the windshield factor uh, Sunday, Monday-ish. So, and we have more snow coming, by the way. So all that snow that's in the East Coast right now where, yeah, I think New Jersey got hit. I heard like two feet, you know, some people even got three feet. That's a, that's a crazy amount of snow. Um, I don't have to worry about that. I just got to worry about staying warm <laughs> the next few days here. Below zero is painful cold. Yeah, well, you know, it's a good thing no one's going outside. I guess you're just hunkering down inside anyway if you're, you know, trying to avoid uh, the plague at this point. <laughs> Exactly. So uh, you mentioned uh, our guests and, uh, you know, today we're going to be talking about people centric identity and access management and breach prevention. And uh, we're going to get to that in a second. Um, Before we start talking about though, I want to make sure we talk about a report that's coming out from our friends over at the Identity Defined Security Alliance, the IDSA. Uh, They've got a report coming out on Thursday, February 4th, which tearing down the fourth wall. Today is Wednesday as we're, as we're recording this, so tomorrow. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, later towards the end of the show, but want to give people a sneak peek about you know what to expect from that report. But without further ado, why don't we bring on our guest? His name is Alec Fry, also known as Fry Identity. Uh, also uh, has one of the best, I think, LinkedIn profile imagery I've seen. That includes the Millennium Falcon and a Superman uh, shirt underneath uh, a button-down shirt. So welcome, Alec. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And I know that, uh, you know, with time differences, you know, things can be interesting, especially when we're, you know, working across the world, but uh, super excited to have you on here. And I think one of the first things that we always like to dive into, you know, when we have guests on is identity and access management and their background in it. Uh, How did you get into IAM? And is it something that shows you or did you choose it? For me, I guess it's kind of a, a strange like a, a love story tragedy, I guess. It, it Boy meets identity, they have fun together, um, but then Boy moves on and does other things in cybersecurity. And then I crossed paths with identity again later on and realized how much I missed it and how much I loved it and how much we were made for each other um, and just come came running straight back. So um, yeah, it's a bit of a, I guess it, it felt like it chose me first off and I took it for granted. Um, but then came back when I realized just how, how much I loved it. Please take me back. Please take me back. I imagine that. <laughs> so I think one of the things that I think is really interesting about um, kind of your background is um, you have a history in stand-up comedy, which, you know, from my records and my recollection, I think is the only person that's come on our show that has that background. Uh, you know, you could argue that we're all comedians in some way. <laughs> my wife likes to think certainly that I am. Um, but I'm curious if there are any crossover skills from your background in that performance space that has translated over into your, you know, your work within IAM itself? Yeah, well, definitely. I mean, I, even the, I did stand-up comedy for 11 years, but it was as a hobby. So it was a, it was an after hours thing. So I was still 
in cybersecurity and identity all through that time. Um, but what I did find is just the, the component where you're trying to know your audience and, and see what resonates and make sure you're not losing any part of the audience. Funnily enough, that actually translated in more of, I guess, like a, just a gener generic consulting type of scenario where you're in a room of seven or eight people. And especially if we're, if we're talking about a, a part of an identity project where you're trying to get ownership and buy-in by not only the, the project sponsor, but the, the finance team and the operation support manager. And so you, you target your presentation in a way to, it, you get into some of the ROI benefits for the finance guys interested. And as soon as you see the ops guy starts to wane a little bit, you're like, oh, but then think of all the efficiencies and the, the procedure improvements and then he perks up. So it really helps you, I guess, sharpen your ability to try and read your audience, so to speak, um, which really fits a lot more for the sort of pre-sales side of, or consulting side of identity. Still, I just, that that interaction with people, I just find that kind of invaluable to have, to have picked up skills in that space. You know, one of the things that I always find impressive around, um, you know, and not just stand-up comedy, but I think just in general, and the native performance arts, and I think that, and I'm curious on your thoughts on this, is I find that the best performers in that space are excellent storytellers, right? They're able to engage the audience. And sometimes you, you'll see comedy in this space, which we'll is talked about that, where it is serious and then it's not. And it flows very well and, and it all hinges on the storytelling ability. And I think when you talk about, you know, engaging whoever your target is, whenever, and in any space in IAM itself, you're going to be having these conversations with stakeholders throughout all levels of the organization. And I can I, I can only imagine that having that background and that experience, right, this is something that comes with it, helps with that messaging, right? Being able to articulate yourself, uh, engage the, you know, the audience, whoever that ends up being, right, whether it's a manager, an analyst, a CEO, whatever it is, being able to target and craft the message towards who you're speaking to, and, and keeping them part of the conversation instead of just being spoken at. Is that, does that resonate for you? Or is that, you know, just me kind of reading into it a little bit more maybe than I probably should be? <laughs> I did a presentation three years ago to the Melbourne group of the identity meetup community on multi-factor authentication. And I tried to make it entertaining. And interestingly, uh, six months or so later, I was on a project to do identity consulting, actually mostly sort of role-based um, access definition and walked in to meet the uh, sort of one of the lead contacts at the project. And he said, hi, how are you? And greeted me like we were old friends. And after five minutes of him saying, I know you from somewhere, we've, we worked together. And then the penny dropped and he said, oh no, no, it was just that I saw your presentation six months ago. And I thought that's a, a side benefit I wouldn't have even picked that by getting up and, and I'm, I'm sure you probably had the same thing is that you get up and you present and people know your name sort of as a bit of a, um, they know you by reputation. And then when they meet you, there's already that sort of extra level of connection because they see, they feel familiar with you. So for me, that was one of the benefits is just a side thing that um, that people immediately feel like they've already had a conversation with you on identity. Yeah, you know, whenever I show up at a client, I, I always have to beat everyone off to get their, you know, their autographs and, and stuff like that. It's like, hey, 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 you know, we're here to work. We're not here to, you know... Uh, you know, sign autographs or anything like that. I'm sure Jim feels the same way whenever we show up at clients, that sort of thing, right, Jim? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's especially with the podcast now and, and uh, you know, our world fame. <laughs> but um, no, I, I, you know, it's interesting, Jeff. I've heard you talk a lot about kind of your background in the restaurant business. And I am often asked, oh, what, you know, what did you go to college for? Was it computer science? And it's actually political science, right? And you, 
people say, well, what does that have to do with what you do now? And it, it's like, oh yeah, there's no, there's no politics in identity and access management, none at all. It's just like with the restaurant service, it's all about like service, putting people first. And that's kind of a segue into the question I was going to throw back um, to Alec. But actually what I um, was even thinking was with stand-up comedy, I think one of the toughest things that I've found in consulting is, you know, almost the heckler. <laughs> the, the, the person in the room is like, yeah, that won't work here. And, you know, the person who just doesn't, who wants to give you a hard time. Um, I think being able to kind of have that stage presence or that, you know, being able to kind of work through those situations and not getting rattled, man, what a valuable skill. And honestly, that only, I, I think that only comes from getting up there, doing it over and over again and kind of building the calluses, building the experience and building the comfort level that, hey, you can, you can rebound even if you make a mistake. Does that does that resonate with you, Alec? It does, but interestingly, um, kind of in a reversed way. So the interesting thing is, on stage, if someone's a heckler, your mo- your model of responding is generally trying to put them down in a way that's going to get all the rest of the audience on your side, and everyone kind of turns on them with a way that says, "Okay, you need to shut up because you're just interfering with everyone else." Funnily enough, though, what I find in that scenario, like you said, of a heckler or someone who's sort of adamant on the competitor's technology or whatever it is that that really is just going against what you're trying to present, the challenge there is actually almost more to make them feel important and say, you know what, everything you're saying has really a lot of value. And, and however, it just, you know, like try and win them over in a way that you don't fight them directly. You kind of agree with them but then try and slightly turn them to your side. Now, having said that, of course, being able to make jokes along the way and keep things light is definitely where the strength comes in there and where the the, the, the background really helps. But um, yeah, that slight variation of just making them a friend rather than putting them in their place is the only sort of difference to that. But yeah, I agree. It, it really helps to have that, that engagement capability. Yeah, absolutely. So where I was going with this is, um, and Jeff kind of mentioned it, like you've got a really cool, uh, LinkedIn, not only profile, but presence. Um, and you do a lot of uh, posts. And a lot of what I've seen you posting about recently is this concept around people-centric IEM. I'd like to hear what you think of that. I'd like to kind of give some of my own perspective on that because I think that perspective is too often ignored. And and like what I was saying that, you know, I think pe- people tend to Think of this as a technology problem, especially if they're not in this space. I think the longer you're in the space, you start to realize how important that customer experience is. But talk a little bit about people-centric IM. What is it that makes that approach important? For me, I guess one of the interesting things is, is way back when I started in the very early days where I was working with, with two-factor authentication with tokens. And the most interesting thing about this, when we're talking mid to late 90s, was strong authentication was seen as if a user is trying to access something and a password is not good enough, then you put a token in their hand and they have to go through this extra checkpoint. The interesting thing there was it was kind of, and as great as it was, because I loved working with that technology at the time, especially, um, but it was a one size fits all, or it was it was trying to solve a problem just by using this one tool. What I'm so impressed to see in the IAM space over the last 20 years is how much it's it's matured and I guess, just the way technology's exploded as well, is that now, in my opinion, to do a very comprehensive identity strategy, 
with the, the people-centric stuff, what it is, is it's about knowing your audience from the, the point of view of the user types. So really not just looking at your users as being, okay, they're either internal users, staff or external users, but there are so many flavors. And even just when people have talked about internal and external, that's kind of progressed to the whole B2E, which is your employees, B2B, which is your business partners and B2C, which is your consumers or SIAM. Similarly, there's even the citizens for like the government environment, which is a user type. Um, so really it's just knowing all the variations of your user type by their classification, but even further than that, by their usage patterns as well. Yeah, I feel like that's something that gets often overlooked is you know the one size all or one size fits all approach that a lot of organizations take. And frankly, there's really not any excuses, I think at this point, right? Maybe back in the day, it probably you know was more related to what was available from a technology perspective. But man, every, Every access management solution today, Okta, Ping, Microsoft, you know, whatever it may be, have some, some number of methods that support things like MFA. So you can have somebody with a you know a physical token, another person's using a soft token on their phone, another one's using SMS and email, even though they're not, you know. The, the most secure method, it's still better than nothing, right? And maybe there's cases where you've also got conditional rules, right? Where people where people are coming from geographically, right? All that stuff is now kind of baseline in these products. So I don't, you know, I think, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would have said, yeah, you know, this is kind of the best as it's going to get just based on what we have now. But with so many different variations of being able to authenticate people into an environment um, with the efforts that have gone into educating the consumer market, and I've, I've said it before, and I'll give them credit again, Apple did a fantastic job of really putting MFA and second factor in front of people's faces, literally on their phones, right? <laughs> Through things like Face ID, Touch ID, you know, Android has the same thing where the, you know, there, there's the Android equivalents of that, those sorts of things. And, you know, they, it's it's helped bring up the overall awareness of these types of capabilities. But where I see a lot of organizations struggle is they decide, okay, well, this is the way we're gonna do it because they're not willing to have more than one or two or three different methods. And, in my, you know, people are, um, going to find ways around things. Um, you know, if you have a rock in the river, the water will flow around it. So you want to try as many of those MFA rocks <laughs> to stop uh, to stop it up uh, as best as you can before you you know you leak data, you know whatever it may be, or you you know allow people to authenticate past that. Um, is that something that, that that you that you see as well, or is that something you think that's more specific to uh, to the U.S. market? No, no, I do see the same thing. Um, I guess what I see here is more of just a reluctance to put the effort into using all of the functionality that's in a solution. So I guess that's where our topics here might sort of overlap a little between the people-centric and the breach prevention is some of the functionality in, in identity solutions that include things like adaptive authentication um, and even pre-authentication checks or what's referred to by one vendor as continuous authentication. So the whole model that says we've got a number of things that we can pull in like risk assessments from external sources. Um, and like you said, the geo functionality. So even that, so you can use certain countries that you block, or you can even have geo fencing where you say anything inside this perimeter is considered within the the, the office location area or, or region or something. And then anything outside that border is you know, next level of, of consideration where you've got, like you said, you've got, you've got your rules, your MFA rules that apply to anything from the geographies to the usage patterns of people, like what times they're logging in. So, and even similar to where I know people do this at home, on your Wi-Fi, whatever, you might say, okay, I'm going to set a rule that says my kids can't be 
on the internet after 8 p.m. Something like that. But you know, translating that to the business scenario, it could be if users are logging in in the country, they've got X level of authentication required. But if they're overseas, even if it's on holidays or whatever, then there's an X level. And a lot of people, like a lot of businesses say, we know that feature's there. We'll get around to using it at some point, but we just haven't made the effort at the moment to do the research on clearly defining which users are where and when. It's something we know is there, but they still don't put it in place just because they haven't got around to it more than anything. So Jeff, I was expecting you to bring up one of your catchphrases, which is around the Amazon shopping cart. Nobody teaches you how to use Amazon. You just figure it out. I, I really feel like that ought to be the mindset we strive for with identity management. And I think what ends up happening, right, is that, you know, as practitioners, we kind of work within the tools, we color within the lines and a company like Amazon is kind of, they're, they're the ones creating the lines, right? They're the they're the, the ones creating the, the new technology future, but it's that mindset of, and, and to me, that's what the people-centric is a lot about, which is that we've got to remember, nobody in the company was hired or in the organization was hired to approve access, right? Or to request access. Like that's not, that's nobody's job. It's something that they have to do in addition to their, their job. And so if we put that mindset on, then we say, how do we make this so that we get the quality that we need, but at the same time, make it as easy as possible, take as little time as possible. So anyway, I want to throw that back to you because I, you know, I, I was almost expecting that that's where you were going. Well, that's a good point you brought it up because I think, you know, the other thing that that just kind of entered my mind is when you're designing people-centric um, IEM services, you need to take into account all of the people. So what happened, you know, 10 years ago when people were using physical tokens and they're blind, they can't see the numbers or, you know, they you know, for whatever reason, have some sort of, you know, inability to use a certain method or whatever it may be that may force the hand of organizations to adopt other forms of, of um, authentication to make it easier for people to, to use. So I think there's a lot of <clears throat> um, ways that you can try to help your organization become more aware of some of those capabilities you know, be aware of what the capabilities are within the application itself, um, but don't get into this struggle that that Alec mentioned where, you know, you rush to get something installed and you get like 10% of the value out of it. And then you move on to something else for a checkbox compliance elsewhere, right? You're fighting fires typically. <laughs> it's like, okay, we don't have MFA. We need to get it in place. All right, now we have tokens. Good. Let's move on to the next thing. It's like, that's okay, but you need to remember to come back and keep expanding and extending the IAM services so that you are getting full value out of these, out of, you know, whatever technology you're putting out there. You know, you've made the investment in the technology, the more that you can get out of it, you know, the the better or more of a rock star you end up looking uh, as you're putting that stuff out. Would you agree with that, Alec? Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's what a big focus of mine is really, is to make sure that people are using all of the functionality that's available in solutions that they've got to cover off as much of that requirement as possible and aligning it not just with what functionality is in the solution and where it's relevant to their situation, but also as we touched on the usage patterns of different user types or, or personas. So a great example I just came across is in an environment where uh, you've got retail workers and of course you'll have 20 year olds that are just doing 
this job as part-time while they're at university, for example. And as we all know, 20 year olds are glued to their smartphones and do everything on them. But then at the other end, you've also got people in their fifties or sixties that do this for part-time work, that anything that they do on their phone is really just phone calls and text for them. If for example, they had to log in to, to, to choose their next shift, they'll go home and do that on the PC rather than do it standing in the store on the phone. So you've got to know when to apply IAM to things like a mobile app versus to a desktop version and, and the usage cases around those. So yeah, I, I agree completely. It's um it's all about making the most use out of what you've already got. Yeah. So when you come around and you start making these investments, you know, I think that's typically one of the bigger drivers that we see from identity access management is what are these investments for? They're typically to reduce risk, which means, you know, redis reducing or uh, you know, outright if you can, eliminate breaches and trying to prevent those sorts of things. What do you see in your in in your view, that trend of breach prevention and where is IAM intersecting with that? Excellent question. What, I, what I'm seeing and what I'm really impressed with, I guess, in the IAM space is that the breach prevention component seems to have been addressed on a number of different, different areas. So as an example, there's the component that I like to call head them off at the pass, which is, you know, trying to prevent the breach before it happens or ensure that only the people that are being authenticated into the system are valid people. And, and that's where you apply those things that we touched on before, like adaptive authentication. What I love as well is pre-authentication. So things like if you're using a, you're, you're probably I'm sure you will use, listeners are familiar with federated authentication models where you type in your username with the domain on the on the end and based on that the system you're connecting to says okay i'm going to read the domain and work out where i'm going to forward your authentication request to and in a scenario where pre-authentication checks are involved it can do everything from saying okay if i've got jeff from identity at the center trying to log in well is he in the country that he's normally in and if he's not then there's a slight threshold of risk added to that and if it's at you know what would be his midnight that's also when he doesn't normally log in so so all of those checks that can be done before you've actually done anything related to trying to verify who you are which is you know add the password or do the token code or whatever the the show the your face or whatever's the next step but that's like i said that's the sort of heading off at the pass the next part that i like also is the shutdown asap type model and that came in some, some years ago when I was working somewhere and they introduced uh, a product called Net Network User Behavior Analysis. And one of the, the, the stories I loved from that vendor was they said they were at a, a company in the States that was uh, like a manufacturer of something like jet engines for, for high profile military or something like that. And they said they were showing the, the demo um, where, you know, you let it run for a week and you're watching users behavior. And then you come back at the end of the week and say, look, here's where, you know, anomalies or whatever. And that, as they were demoing it, an anomaly was occurring before their eyes where they're going, hang on, here's a guy from, from admin or something. And he's gone, he's accessing the, um, the R&D database and he's pulling down truckloads of data right now. This isn't normal. Hang on, you know, the system interacts and prompts him with an MFA auth or whatever and 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 stuff like that. But the, the interesting thing was they, they actually said, let's go and, and check on this person. They walked to his desk and saw and, and basically he was stealing company data that he was going to go and try and sell. So that kind of stuff of let's find them and shut them down. Um, and that translates because that was more sort of a user behavior tool example. But in an IAM, a more classical IAM example, there's also the one that just says, you've logged in, you've got access to certain things, but as your behavior is looking more and more risky, we'll throw in another authentication request and everything else or an MFA or whatever. And that's where you'll get people who, um, you know, those horror stories of someone was breached and there was a, a, a hacker was sitting in there for 40 days before they were noticed. So this is where you get the much earlier pickup of someone's been in there for a day and they've done one thing that looks slightly out of place. They've been pushed for extra authentication that they can't meet and then they've been kicked out. 
So that kind of stuff. Um, the only last point I guess I'll add to that is one of the things that kind of helps in breach prevention is the educational awareness. So also people being taught on a daily basis to try and spot phishing attacks and that kind of thing. So that's, you know, to fit that whole sort of people process technology, it, it's across all of those that you can help address that. You hit on a couple of uh, points there that I think are so relevant that I just want to take the take a moment and kind of tease out. I think the first thing is with breach prevention, probably the biggest thing is breach detection. You know, you mentioned 40 days versus one day. It doesn't mean that in one day some damage won't occur, but it's going to be less damage than would occur over 40 days or we sometimes see longer. I mean, a lot of the um, the uh, reports that have been put out there put that timeline as even longer on average. Some of the breaches that we've seen have, you know, hackers have been inside the system for a year or longer. And you can exfiltrate a lot of data in that time. And you can install a lot of malware that continues to leave that um, that tunnel open to continue your exploits. Um, the other thing that I thought was was really interesting, you were talking about, um, you know, the, this internal person who is stealing data. We had uh, Dr. Chase Cunningham uh, on the show last week, and he was talking about zero trust. And I think that has become such an interesting framework, such an important framework. It's been around forever, but I think within the last year and even two years has picked up so much steam, gotten a lot of recognition within the industry, uh, but it's really recognizing the fact that um, all breaches aren't coming from the outside. I, I don't remember the exact report and Jeff, you might remember, but there's something like a third of uh, data breaches are uh, performed by internal actors. So, if you've got a third of your breaches happening be from external actors, keeping the bad guys out isn't the full solution. It's not that it's not important. You still have to do it, but you need to think about the bad guys may already be in. In fact, the bad guys may be people that you quote unquote trust. They may be your domain administrators. It's not that, you know, I'm preaching to uh, the practitioners out there that you should distrust those folks that work for you, but you can't write them the blank check to say, we trust you, we're not going to watch you, we're not going to have the internal checks and balances to make sure that um, your, you know, your activity is being logged and monitored. Um, in fact, I think it's probably important to the extreme to do that because the level of access that those internal actors sometimes have is so highly elevated that the amount of damage that can be done um, is just, you know, it's it's super high. Yeah, I think you know you're you're right on there. It's it's about a third of where um, breaches come from is on the internal side of things, and it could be employees, it could be vendors, etc. You know, traditional people inside the firewall versus outside the firewall. That's kind of thinking behind it. Um, you know, Alec, you brought up one point that I thought was interesting. I think. This is something that I'm seeing in more products being available, and that is being able to take advantage of things like factor sequencing. So what this does is essentially allow you to say, hey, I'm going to throw up the MFA prompt first and then do the password. Um, 
in an area where somebody who might be getting a lot of password requests, you know, password reset requests, et cetera, that could be a way to improve the usability for some people and improve the security at the same time. So that might be something that's worth taking a look at if you've got that capability within your access management or uh, you know, authentication stack is to take a look at things like factor sequencing to um, you know, tailor uh, certain scenarios where you'll alleviate some of the pain that's on the end user and being able to take advantage of you know, all the bells and whistles <laughs> that, that come along as part of your, your application or, or, your, or your service. Uh, and Jim, you brought up another one I thought was important is yeah, the whole trusting around internal actors, right? So, you know, I think most people want to believe that, you know, people who work for a company are trusted resources and they're going to do the right thing. And, you know, I like to be the optimist and say, yeah, I think that that's the way most people will, will handle it. Where I find that the challenge typically comes in is not the intention of trying to do something bad. It's you get lazy. So you start to find workarounds to get around the security methods. And then it becomes, you slip up, you made a mistake, you weren't trying to do a bad thing, but now you've reused this password on a system that has become compromised somewhere else. And that's the, you know, the way in that someone gets in. So it's not only just a matter of stopping absolute bad actors inside, but I think also putting up some guardrails to kind of hedge against the you know, the, the human trait of laziness <laughs> that, that some people might end up having or bad practices or bad habits, et cetera, that um, add more risk to the environment. Does that make sense, Jim? Absolutely. Um, I saw as recently as today also that factor sequencing piece that you're talking about. And, you know, the way I think of that is that, you know, one of the things that's really annoying is that the bad guys can lock out your account by just you know, peppering the password and then you're locked out. They never get to the MFA prompt. But, you know, you can just annoy somebody to death. Uh, whereas if you ask for the multi-factor as the first step, you can prevent that. But that's just a little side thing. One thing that I wanted to also bring up um, was something that Alec mentioned to us in a previous discussion around that RSA uh, pin project that you had worked on it, you know, back in the day. And the, the idea, I just thought it was such a, it was a story I'd never heard in the IAM space. It was the, the gun behind your head kind of scenario. So I, I will steal your thunder, Alec. Why don't you go ahead and tell that story? Sure. Um, okay. So it was in the, in late 98 when I was a, a, a trainer for RSA. And one of the features that they have in their solution that I was blown away by was a thing called the duress pin. And the idea behind that is for everyone that's familiar with using two-factor tokens back in the day where you had to type in your pin number followed by the number on the token. The model here was that if you transpose the last digit of your pin by one, so if your pin was 1234, instead you type in 1235, that would alert every administrator on the system that you've logged in under duress, where the intention is if you've been forced to log in because there's a gun held to your head, then yes, the system will log you in, but it will highlight to every administrator. Um, it can also send like an SNMP trap that then sends texts to people. So it, it can be done so that in real time, administrators are aware of that. And my favorite addition to that function was that if you yourself were an administrator and then logged into the log file to see exactly what's being shown, your view will be filtered so that you don't see all of the alerts that went to all of your other administrative colleagues. Reason being that if the person with the gun to your head is smart enough to say, hey, you've just logged in, but you're an administrator, 
show me the logs to prove you haven't done something like, you know, the equivalent of a person in a bank pressing a little button under the table, show me you haven't alerted everyone, they won't see that you have. So um, I was impressed by that. That for me fits into that breach prevention or, you know, breach detection of shut it down as soon as possible, even though it actually occurred. And this is technology from 20 odd years ago, 23 years ago. So um, it's some of those things have been around a long time. I'm very impressed with that. I can't imagine how complex it would be to try to explain to somebody, okay, you need to set up a password that is 16 characters, alphanumeric, you know, has this, has has the, the special characters, uppercase, lowercase. Okay, great. You got that set? Okay, now I need you to set up a duress password <laughs> with, the, with the same type of things. I think people would like freak out completely. I, I'm sure I'm sure there's ways to do it, but I can only imagine like, you know, how that would work um, <laughs> in, the, in the real world today with our with our users. So, well, because one of the things I was hoping to, to get to earlier in the conversation as well, I'm actually keen for everyone to be looking, especially with features like factor sequencing, towards the sequencing of factors being things like your your touch ID or your face ID and um, like something like a symbol to accept on a, on a um, app, authenticator app, but ideally moving off passwords. I mean, I know you've probably had lots of people on the show that have said this, but I'm definitely a strong believer in the camp of passwords are well past their prime. They should be in a retirement home with a blanket over their, their legs and all that kind of stuff. They, they did a great job just like horse and cart deliveries for milk in the 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but they should definitely be retired now. Anyway, that's that's my little preach for that. No, and I'm with you. I think the, the technology is there. It is absolutely in place where organizations can start to move away from passwords as primary authentication. It's built into the OS now in Windows and also in Mac. Um, you know, they're really, the, the only excuse, you know, right now is basically organizational will to do it. You probably have most of the things that you already need. If you don't, it'll take probably some investment to get there, but just think how much, how, how much happier everyone will be when you don't have to remember that password, right? You log in with a pin plus, you know, your phone or one or the other, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, I, I'm looking forward to celebrating the death of the password password again this year, as we've probably celebrated <laughs> over the last several years. We keep hearing the password is going to die, but I, I am totally with you. Password is dead day. <laughs> password is dead day. Yeah, we'll we'll try to make that a uh, a global holiday. You know, maybe even strive for a galactic holiday. How about that? <laughs> Actually, I'd love to see a news story, and it's probably like 100 years from now, 50 years from now, where today, officially recorded history, the very last password in use has just been officially retired. Somewhere there'll be a, uh, a mainframe still running rack FID <laughs> with a password because some insurance company hasn't figured out how to move off of that. Um, and, you know... You know, no, no offense to our friends in the insurance company, but that's usually one of the areas that is a little bit slower to move off of. But all right. So I think, you know, we, we've covered a lot of ground today and I want to make sure that we leave some time here to talk about um, this report that's coming out from our friends over at the IDSA or the Identity Defined Security Alliance. Um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it is coming out on February 4th, which is a Thursday. Um, and it's a really interesting. Uh, we were able to get kind of an advanced sneak peek of it from our friend Julie over there. So shout out to Julie and thanks to her for that. Um, it is an excellent piece of research that they've done. Um, the title of the report is Identity and Access Management, the Stakeholder Perspective, Dash, a Survey of HR Sales and Help Desk Professionals. Kind of a long title, but essentially what we're talking about here is people in HR, sales and help desks that are commenting on the state of IAM from their perspective, right? A lot of times we see the perspective coming from the CISO, managers, executives, et cetera. 
you know, now we're seeing a piece of work that is focusing on the frontline workers of IAM typically, uh, people who are in the trenches, you know, where I've gotten my start to in the IAM space, so I certainly, you know, understand how that works. Um, and they have some really interesting um, factoids and uh, charts and graphs. If you are looking to um, promote uh, IAM within your organization, it is definitely worth a look. Um, there's three main areas, and we'll talk about here in, in a little second just for a quick discussion, but um, they talk about system access challenges, uh, stakeholder investments in security, and the state of process and technology for system access. So I'm going to throw out one stat that came out of this report just kind of as a teaser because we want people to go to idsalliance.org to check it out because I think it really is good. Um, and that is under the system access challenges area, there was a, a survey done as is, as is done in this type of thing. 72% of the respondents said it took a week or longer to get access to all the system a person needs. Now, if you think about it, when you're having conversations with you know, the, the business, they're always like, oh, we need it right away, or you know, we need it within 24 hours or 48 hours. But the people who are on the ground actually doing this work, 72% have said that it takes a week or longer to get everything. And I, you know, I think that is uh, un unfortunately still relatively normal <laughs> in a lot of organizations. You know, some things might be automated, but I want to toss it around kind of the virtual room here. And maybe we can start with uh, you, Alec. Uh, you know, I think you're probably just hearing this for the first time. Any kind of gut reaction to that kind of statistic? Are you are you shocked? Are you not shocked? Um, you know, what do you think? Yeah, sadly, I'm not too shocked because uh, interestingly, just been working in a few project environments where even though role-based access control is something people are aware of, it's not fully utilized yet or it's not fully fleshed out. And for that reason, there is always lagging um, requests for applications that just weren't weren't processed in the initial sign-on of a user. So uh, yeah, it is it is unfortunate that I've seen that in too many places, but I'm really similar to the world going passwordless. I'm really hoping that people get their role-based access control and their defined user privileges at you know, onboarding time, sort of more streamlined that that number really dissipates over the coming years. Jim, what do you think? So, I, I mean, we see it all the time, right? I think what organizations have gotten to the point of doing really well, almost, let's not say across the board, but 90% is automating Active Directory or Office 365 access and getting people email. So that stuff tends to happen lightning quick. In other words, on day one, someone has kind of that core access, but it's the applications that are off in the hinterlands. And the, the more that or the less automation an organization has, the more they rely on email, uh, passing around forms, even IT, SM tickets. Um, the more automation you have, the better. But uh, typically what I, what I see is that almost everybody is getting good at kind of automating that, that core functionality around Active Directory. And then as it goes beyond that, that's where things tend to slow down. So when I hear a week, I'm thinking the person probably has you know, 50% to 75% of their access is the, that last mile of access that they're waiting on. So, um, yeah, I, you know, that that's kind of been my experience. And, um, you know, I've been dying to ask this question because we kind of, we kind of teased in the beginning, Jeff, it's cold in the U S Southern hemisphere, it's summer. So Alec, I mean, are you enjoying, Beautiful warm weather. Are you hitting the beach? How are you enjoying the summer? 
So I don't know how well you guys know um, different cities in Australia, but I'm in Melbourne um, and Melbourne's famously known for having four seasons in a day. So unfortunately today is a relatively sunny day, but only as much as like three or four days ago, it was almost raining the whole day. So uh, having said that, my, my colleagues in both Perth and Brisbane um, have a lot more of the kind of California sunny type weather that you guys would think of Australia of when you when you think of Australian beaches. So yeah, for me, one every four or five is a nice sunny day at the moment. Yeah, Melbourne's in Victoria, right? Yes. So that's one of the uh, the areas that actually we have quite a few listeners in from for the podcast itself, which is great. Uh, Victoria and New South Wales seem to be kind of the the biggest hotspots for us in Australia, which is which is great. And I totally understand the whole four four seasons in one day. Chicago can absolutely be like that. We'll have you know fifty degree, sixty degree temperature swings uh, sometimes. Um, you know Fahrenheit, and I'm not going to try to do the math into, into Celsius <laughs> at the moment. But um, you know, it's the kind of day you leave the house with a winter jacket, you go out for lunch in short sleeves. And then you're shoveling snow when you get home, right? <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, exactly. it's one of those types of things. Yeah. So, um, all right. So I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably covered, like, like I said, a lot of ground here. We've got a lot of good topics. Um, Alec, thanks so much for being part of the show. We're going to have a link to your LinkedIn in our show notes, which you can find inside of whatever app you're listening to right now. You can also search the web for Fry Identity, F-R-Y Identity. Um, you've got a lot of good information that's going out onto LinkedIn. Before we close things out here, any uh, final words of wisdom uh, that you'd like to uh, bequeath upon us? Probably I'd just say for people to look at the capabilities of the solutions they've got and where possible, make sure they're applying MFA as appropriately as they can for their user base to meet their usage needs and everything else. Sage advice. I appreciate that. Jim, how about yourself? Anything you want to close with? Well, in honor of having our first stand-up comedian on the show, uh, I say people-centric identity. It's no joke. Oh, that that was terrible, Jim. <laughs> I'd like to leave you with one more then, I guess, when you talk about biometrics. And, and the one thing I think about it, with that is uh, that retinal scanning is all fun and games until someone loses a credential. I absolutely love that. Alec, I um, I might turn that into the teaser. I don't know. I think I'm going to try to figure out how to work that in. But if you don't get it, stop stop the podcast, rewind, go back and listen because I think it's super clever. Um, <laughs> it, it is definitely very good. And uh, uh, that is a I don't know is that a fryism? How do we how do we coin that? Or make sure that you get the uh, the appropriate credit for that. <laughs> I'd love that. Yeah, a fryism. That sounds great to me. All right, so we'll do that. Um, all right, so I think uh, we're coming here at the end of the end of the hour. Um, let's go ahead and call it for this week. Uh, Alex, certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much for starting your day with us and helping us end our day <laughs> uh, with this conversation on our side. Um, like I said, there will be a bunch of links in uh, the show notes. You can find those in your podcast app uh, for the IDSA uh, report, as well as to links to Alec on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also find links to ourselves and, and our website on LinkedIn, as well as identityatthecenter.com. You can see us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. And with that, we'll go ahead and close it out for this week. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll talk with you all in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.